Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Podgo is providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. That is one more time, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, podgo dot co. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Podcast. Joining us on the line right now is a musician, a theme music king. He's a theme music legend. You may know him as the Hurricane. He is J.J. McGuire. J.J., welcome to the two-man power trip. Oh, great. I'm so excited. I've heard great things about the two-man power trip. Uh, That's no mystery to the uh, entertainment world. I'm thrilled to be here, and hopefully we can tell some good stories and some truths and facts and separate the fiction from the truth and uh, give everybody a little run for their money here. Absolutely. So what have you been up to today? What's going on in your world? Well, uh, every day something's going on. Uh, Recently I've been working real hard uh, with my screenplay that's completed, and uh, Evan Ginsberg and I are executive producers of uh, we're going to make a major motion picture, and we're in the process of uh, we're actually going to Seoul, uh, it's the first part of next year to meet with some of the Korean uh, top uh, movie companies over there. We're looking at trying to do a combination thing with Americans and, uh, you know, the Seoul people as well, and uh, action-adventure, uh, you know, film that uh, should be really exciting. So I've been really working on that real hard for, the, like, the last couple of years. But we have a, a third draft script right now that we finally completed, and, Looking real good. We got a lot of interest and in everything. So I've been working on that some, and then still writing music and everything too. And my kids came up today. My son's going to college uh, this fall, and so uh, it's been it's a busy day. I keep saying one of these days uh, I'll actually put my feet up, but so far no way. Yeah, you seem like you're still keeping very busy and writing. I guess right, writing screenplays. I mean, is that different, or is that something yeah. you were always into? Oh, that's something I was always into. Uh, originally, this screenplay I, I had written for Hulk Hogan and uh, Robert Conrad like 20 years ago. I came up with the original premise and started honing down on it. And uh, But in the meantime, time went by. I got involved in other stuff and everything. And then, of course, uh, Robert Conrad got older and he passed away. Uh, God bless his soul. And, and then Hulk, you know, had all his things going on and whatever. And so I uh, kind of got on the back burner, you know, for about eight years to 10 years. And then so, but I honed it on down and worked it more and more and more like you have to do on a, a really good script. And, uh, my partner, David Daring, who's a fabulous script writer got with me. I came up with the concept, the main characters and many of the scenarios. And then he filled in the blanks from there. And so I've, this, this has been kind of a labor of love. Uh, you know, I've been working on it off and on for really the last 15, 20 years from the original idea of it. But uh, 
Yeah, and then I'm doing uh, a lot of appearances. I'm uh, I canceled all my appearances, meet and greets, because of the virus. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, <clears throat> so now I'm uh, next month. Uh, I'm appearing with Ted DiBiase down in Tennessee, and then I'm appearing with Demolition, and uh, then I'm at uh, Hazard Fest uh, down in Greenville, Tennessee, a two-day uh, fair thing down there with uh, a lot of icons of wrestling and. So I'm starting to pick back up and uh, do the thing, you know, but I, I just didn't want to get out there and mingle around while that virus was hammering everybody. So now that it's kind of slacking up, you know, I'm back on the road again. Nice. Very cool. Did you always uh, do like the convention scene? Was that something that was, uh, you know, a part of what you were doing? Well, no, uh, really, uh, to be honest with you, from square one, uh, from when uh, conceived all this music and everything, I didn't have any idea. I knew it knew it was giving people a lot of enjoyment, and you know we had worldwide airplay with it, and the music the music uh, that we did is on all the CDs and games and everything. But I never thought in my wildest dreams that thirty something years later that anybody would even care. But it seems like there's as many or more people now uh, enjoying it as were during the day, and was. Is, I'm glad. I'm thankful for that. But uh, I kind of did all that, and then I got married uh, and kind of stepped away from everything and had kids and just looked back at it like, well, it's fun. Of course, the royalties kept coming in. Uh, royalties still come in, and uh, you know, I didn't really push myself on people and whatever. But then my son was 14 years old. He came home from school one day and he said, "Dad, would you text these other kids for me?" I said, "Well, what is it?" He said, "Well." The kids were asking me at school if my dad was the wrestling music man. Now, this is a 14-year-old kids, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I, the kids that young that you know or care? I thought, if so I got to thinking, you know, maybe I I should let the, the people who are interested, so maybe I should come out and, you know, let the people know and talk to them about it because they're truly interested. So that's when I started doing the meet-and-greet circuit. I did the big event in New York City. Uh, it was one of the first things I did. And then I was at Heroes and Legends with Sting uh, in Fort Wayne. And it's just picked up from there. And this one uh, at the Heroes and Legends show in Fort Wayne, this couple comes up to me. And they said, Mr. McGuire, we've waited a lifetime to meet you. And I said, what? <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? They said, I said, Sting is here. He's he's around the corner here. You're We've seen Sting already three times or whatever. We came expressively to see you because we love the music so much from the day, and we had to meet you. And we came to see you primarily, and I was blown away by that. And so, you know, I really realized that there's many deep-hearted fans that this music is really, they keep saying over and over that this music, you know, is a part of the fabric of their life. And it's very touching when people say that. Uh, I just figured it'd be something exciting, maybe for a couple of three years, and then that'd be the end of it, and something else come along. But I'm just uh, completely devastated by the sincerity of fans to come up and and want to talk about the music and and ask questions about it and everything. I, I'm just I'm very flattered and very thankful because I, I never in my wildest dreams thought that it'd be something that would go this far. That is awesome, though, as far as the fan base. They absolutely love you. How did you actually get into, like, the wrestling business? I know like, you're a musician by trade, but how did you actually break into the wrestling side of things? Well, Jimmy Hart and I were in the Gentries together. We had hit records in the Gentries in the 70s, okay, in the mid-70s and whatever. And so uh, Jimmy was uh, the first. We went to see a show. We were playing in the Gentries down in uh, Florida. And on Sunday, they had a wrestling show with uh, Sputnik Monroe and a bunch of those guys from that era. Okay, Jimmy didn't know anything about wrestling other than he liked to watch it. Okay, that's hard to believe, I don't know. And so we went, we sat there, and the whole time, Jimmy never took his eyes off the ring. You know, I, I would talk to him, and, and he would just keep his head, yeah, okay, McGuire, yes, uh-huh, yeah. He never turned his head, never saw a person so enthralled by what he was seeing. But he knew Sputnik from Memphis. And so uh, Sputnik uh, asked us if we could even ride back to the hotel when the thing was over. The people all thought that we were with him and he was a heel. So they went out there and threw mud all over our vehicle and everything and trashed it all up. You wow. Know, uh, kayfabe. And, and we went out there and we jumped in, dodged the mud and got in and, and went back to the hotel. But Sputnik was really the first 
famous wrestler that that uh, I ever met. And of course, this was this was during the territory years and before Vince McMahon was high rolling and any of that was going, you know. And I was only like uh, twenty years old at that time, you know, way back. And so, but I knew that Jimmy had some kind of affliction to that. And then, lo and behold, a few years later, Jerry Lawler. Uh, Jimmy knew Jerry from Memphis because uh, uh, he'd hired Jimmy and, and uh, us to do some music programs on some of the uh, outdoor wrestling programs, okay? So one day I got a call, and it was uh, Jimmy and Jerry on a conference call. And, uh, hello, McGuire, this is uh, Jerry Lawler. Hey, Jerry, how are you? Well, listen, I had this idea. Now, this is going to blow you away. This is all for real. He said, McGuire, I know that you're the master musician, Jimmy does those lyrics, and Jimmy gives tips and stuff. Jimmy doesn't really play anything, plays a little harmonica, but you're the music maestro. But together, you guys, you know, write together and do things with the gentries. But he said, I had this idea about doing a 45 record and selling it at the gimmick table out in the lobby at the wrestling matches at the Coliseum. I said, King, sounds real good. Uh, What do you think? He says, well, McGuire, I know you and Jimmy are geniuses. Y'all can come up with something for me, and I want to sing it, and you all figure it out. And how about, why don't you uh, let me book you a plane ticket next Tuesday to come to Memphis. And he said, I'll book you a first-class ticket. Me treating me just like royalty. And uh, I live in Somerset, Kentucky. Uh, uh, we're, we're on a big, we're a resort town up here on Lake Cumberland. And so... He said, uh, I'll call you, Jimmy, I'll call you and tell you when to get your ticket. Come on down. Let's let's get it together. So we went to Sam Phillips recording. And, of course, that's where we recorded the Gentry's music and stuff. And so we went over there. And so he said, well, what do you guys think? So I came up with this, and Jimmy agreed. Let's take Neil Sadaka's Breaking Up is Hard to Do and make it disco, because this was a disco era in the latter 70s, you understand. And so I rearranged Breaking Up is Hard to Do and made it disco and and cut the track and used this brand-new Roland Jupiter 8 synthesizer that just came out that every keyboardist in the world, from Paul McCartney to whoever, you know, wanted to use. They happened to have one at Strings and Things in Memphis, and they brought it over. We rented it and did this disco rendition of Breaking Up is Hard to Do, and Lawler sang it. And it was the first record of ever recorded or done or sold at a wrestling match. Then after we did that, though, then he wanted us to do the Ballad of Handsome Jimmy Valiant. That was the second one. But the, Jerry Lawler is the person that gave Jimmy Hart and myself the open door into the wrestling business. That's and it. that's where it started. That's exactly where it started. And... uh that's what we did, and he just sold the fire out of those. And nobody had ever sold a record at anything like that before. Now, you got to realize, no Vince McMahon yet. Vince McMahon uh, uh, Sr. was up there. They just had a little territory up north, you know. You, you, you know. And they weren't worldwide or any big deal. They were on WOR. They just got a WOR slot on Saturdays or something, which was a, a push. But no worldwide what you got now. And Jerry Lawler was the first person to conceive the idea of selling a record at wrestling matches. Definitely had some foresight there. I mean, it's very, very smart. Yeah, uh, Obviously, Jerry, Vince Jr., Jerry, years, years later, would kind of, you know, really take that, right, and, and spearhead it. So how did you kind of get, after Jerry, like, how did you get clued in with, with Vince Jr. and the WWF? Was that all through Jimmy Hart? Well, basically, uh, yes. Uh, what happened was, is Jim Johnson, they had Jim Johnson doing music when they were just a small outfit, you know, doing uh, high school gyms and armories up there. And he was a friend. Uh, he did a commercial. They wanted a commercial uh, for the WOR show. And so somebody said, uh, Vince said, does anybody know some musician or somebody that can do, a, uh, you know, this is before Jimmy got up there. And uh, they said, yeah, we know this guy named Jim Johnson, and uh, he has a little studio over here somewhere. So anyway, Johnson did a little background track for an advertisement for him. That that was it. So then they decided that they needed somebody to uh, be a music department or whatever for him, so he got in there. 
But then the way that we got in, then Vince wanted uh, Hillbilly Jim is who brought Jimmy to uh, WWF. And uh, it's real funny. And I've always been there when all these monumental events happened. It's just, it, uh, if, if you get my book, My Life in Heaventown, you can read all this. It's it's all unbelievable. It's just what I said. Everything for me is my life in Heaventown. And I was standing at Jimmy's. We were working on some stuff one day. Uh, just between, We had a thing called Hot Rocket. Rick Dees promoted us on the uh, WMPS radio in Memphis. And we had a hit record instantly out of the box because, you know, everything used to be broken on radio. That's how you did it. It wasn't the Internet or whatever. And so we had this thing called Get It On Tonight. And I played all the instruments, and Jimmy and I sang it. Jimmy did the lead singing. I did the harmony and whatever. And uh, so we were doing this thing called Hot Rocket, you know, and it's just the two of it. And so then I was standing at Jimmy's. We were working on some other stuff. Phone rang. All right, Jimmy answers it. We were in the kitchen talking and he goes hello and he doesn't say anything he just keep he looks at the phone keeps listening like the deer in the headlights like what's this then he hung up i said who was it oh the boys they're ribbing one of the boys calling trying to pretend they're vince mcmahon wanting to talk talk he said i know too much i'm they're not putting me on that forget it then the phone rang immediately again he picked it up off the wall hello Jimmy, this is Hillbilly Jim. I'm up here in New York with Vince. It's real. Vince wants, he looked at the Memphis tapes. He wants you to fly up next week and talk about signing a deal. Oh, okay, Hillbilly. He knew that was Hillbilly because, you know, we all know each other. Mm-hmm. And and so I was standing right there. This is all in the book, too. And so he said, well, yeah. And then Vince got He said, yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Click. Now what, Jimmy? Well, that was Vince McMahon and Hillbilly up there. Uh, Vince saw all the tapes down here from Channel Five, and he's wanting—he's going to fly me up. I'm going to talk about signing a contract. I said, "Man, that sounds great." I said, "We might be able to do something up there with music before it's over with." <laughs> and that sure worked out. That's pretty uh, pretty great, though. I love that Jimmy thinks it's a prank. <laughs> you know, he's like, "Nah, come he on." Hung up on Vince. Yeah. Hung up on Vince. Yeah. I wonder, I, I wonder how many times that happened where Vince is like, well, I'm not calling him back. You know what I mean? Like, oh, screw that guy. Well, you know, the territory guy, he picked all the top talent out of the territories. That's how yes. he built it. Yes. As we know. And uh, so then Jimmy went up and got the deal going. Okay, so the first wrestling album, they used a lot of cover material like Land of a Thousand Dances and different things and what have you. But then Vince realized, you know, we need to have original music that we own all the rights to. And, the right, you know, uh, Jimmy and I always kept our writers' rights and royalties. And, but Vince is the publisher because it's his show. And then the publisher has to pay us half of what comes in on that, too. And then we get our writers' royalties as well. So we had a sweet deal. There will be nobody ever in wrestling music history that will ever have the deal that I made for us with WWF, ever. And now they just do licensing things and, you know, go a cheaper route and so forth and whatever. But this was when it was kicking big. This was late 80, 86. And uh, so I negotiated the whole thing and got us hooked up with CSAC International. And, uh, you know, everything worked out fabulous for decades. You know, we make really excellent money, but nobody will ever make a deal like that again. There won't be that money like that that we made then. And so Johnson, back to him. So right when we came in on that second album, we had the, I wrote, uh, Jimmy did the lyrics. I wrote Demolition. I wrote Honky Tonk Man. And Jimmy did a single song called Crank It Up. Mm-hmm. That's on the Pile Driver album. Yep. Okay, here we go again, My Life in Heaven Town. I mean, th- I mean, you couldn't write this in a script uh, if you dreamed it yourself. Okay, so I called BMI and ASCAP and see what kind of deal they'd make with us with a front money because we were on every major TV network around the world in 170 countries, not to mention all the coliseums across the world in the U.S. and everywhere. All right, so I knew we, we had a lot of leverage. So BMI and ASCAP said, well, we know that you've got more airplay than a lot of hit groups do, but we don't, we're, we're a nonprofit, so uh, we'll take you to the bank and co-sign a note for an advance. No, thank you. Goodbye. So then I called CSAC, who is the oldest performing rights society 
in the world. Uh, Woody Guthrie was with them to start with. Uh, and now Bob Dylan's with them and Neil Diamond and the biggest there is. And so I call CSAC and I'll be dead darn. The girl says, hello, CSAC, Nashville. I said, uh, this is J.J. McGuire and myself and Jimmy Hart. We're doing all the theme music at this time for WWE. Johnson took a job doing music for Deep Space Nine TV show. So he was kind of knocked out of the picture. He couldn't keep up with all this influx of new talent, you know. So we stepped in. And uh, so CSAC, she said, one moment, please. A guy picks the phone up, says, hi, this is Tom Casey, vice president of CSAC, Nashville. He said, J.J., I'm so thrilled you called me. I said, uh, what do you mean? He said, I just went out to lunch, and I just bought the Piledriver album, and I just got through playing the album and looking at your all stuff on there, and I'm holding the album cover in my hand as we talk. Pretty <laughs> awesome. I mean, <laughs> it's unbelievable, really. And so he said... He knew wrestling because he had been a big wrestling and baseball and sports fan his whole life. And he knew everything about it. And he said, we would be honored to represent WWF, you know, catalog of your all's music and whatever. And y'all are really tearing it up. You know, we had uh, in the late eighties and uh, through the nineties, we had 96% of all WWF themes. And, so he said, we can make any deal, whatever you think, we'll make it. Because, you see, they were able to sell those licenses worldwide. And uh, so I forged a deal for us. They agreed to it. We, Jimmy and I flew to Nashville. We flew to Nashville on Black Friday in the 80s when people were killing themselves over losing all their money of the crash of the stock market. And that's the same day that Friday we went and signed a multi-million dollar deal. Maybe a dumb question. It's all in the book. This yeah, might be a dumb question. Um, who owns the music, though, technically? Would it be Vince or would it be you and Jimmy? No, we own the writer's rights. We were we always had our writer's rights, and Vince is the publisher. And then the publisher is obligated to pay half of the income of everything sold and products and whatever, you know, to the writers, too. So I was curious then, about uh, that. Yeah, so that's how that deal was. But you won't make that deal now. So, uh, yeah, so it's just one big chain of events. It's just it's like a dream out of a dream, uh, just to be honest. And we were just thankful. And then we were sitting in the aisle and uh, row 13, and the number 13 has been recurrent in my life was some of the greatest things that's ever happened for me in my whole life. It's in the book too. So uh, that's where it all kind of started out. And then uh, we went to the CSAC uh, International Awards show and Jimmy and I received the uh, Millennium Venue Licensing Songwriters Award because more licenses were sold to venues and coliseums and TV states, NBC, ABC, Fox, everything you can name, TNT, the works. You know, they sold more uh, reproducing licenses on us than probably any artist they ever had that had hit records. Wow. So they treat, they treated us extremely well and, and the money was excellent. So what's the relationship like with Vince McMahon Jr. at this point? Oh, uh, well, Vince is always, uh, uh, great to us. Uh, he, he call me every Christmas and Jimmy and thank us for doing what we did and, you know, and all that. But, but now I want to make it clear that WWF was a different entity back then than it is today. I can't make any grand comments on today's WWE because uh, our era was the golden era and, uh, things were different because you had four people that ran the whole show up there and that was Vince and Linda and, uh, Pat Patterson and, uh, the producer, uh, what's his name? It does all the, the video and everything. Kevin Dunn. Uh, yeah. Kevin Dunn. Sorry. And, uh, they loved us. I mean, they just treated us like royalty, you know, and, 
so I, I just have to tell the truth that the experience with that entity of WWF was superior. Now, where it all went from there, I can't comment because I, I just can't. But uh, as far as uh, from 1986 through 1994 and five, you know, that's when Hulk and, and Jimmy and myself, we went with WCW and started doing music for WCW, you know. And, uh, but it was a grand experience and uh, something, I, you know, is a part of my fabric of my life forever. And uh, I'm forever grateful for. With those theme songs, I'm always curious, like, where does, like, the inspiration come from? Like, where do you kind of think? Is it just like you're kind of like, you know, a musical genius just pops in your head like, oh, hey, demolition, here comes the act. Like, where does the, 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 the lyrics come from? Where does the, the music come from? Well, usually, Jimmy, we, we would get in the back at the Coliseums or wherever, a hotel room, and we got it. We need to come up with something for Ted DiBiase, McGuire. Okay, got, what do you got? So I'd set my rig up and I'd hammer around there a little bit and go, Jimmy, go, that sounds like it. Or go, no, that's too, that's too jabroni-ish sounding. We need something a little more serious maybe, you know. He just made comments like that. And so then I said, well, how about this? Dun, 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 dun. But the way we came up, the way I came up with it, we were at a block on what to come up with for Ted. So, uh I said, let's take a break, Jimmy. I said, uh, we're trying too hard. Let's get something to drink out here and, you know, some potato chips or something and thin down a minute and get back to it. What do you think? Okay, yeah, let's do He said, i got to make some calls anyway. So we came back in the room, and I got a call from CSAC, our royalty company and everything, Performing Rights Society. And Jimmy came in. And I said, well, I just got a call from CSAC. Our royalty check's going to be two weeks late this month because they got behind on some reporting overseas and whatever, but you know, we'll get it, but it's just going to be late. They apologize. They said, but when they're late like that, they, they give us a little bonus, you know, for having to wait. And, uh, he said, well, that's typical. I said, well, you know, Jimmy, it's all about the money. Bingo. Jimmy heard that. He said, that's it. That's it. McGuire. It's all about the money. Now we got something. He took his pen, pen, on the yellow pad, and he started writing down these words. And without any, without the whole music, he says, "Okay, here's some words I've come up with." And I said, "Okay, I heard that." And then I went, "Dun dun 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 dun," and there's your song. Awesome, man! It's just that easy for you guys, I guess. You know, you guys got the gift. Well, we worked together in the gentry. We're two similar type guys. We're from the South. We like the same foods. Uh, we we listen. We like working with people. Uh, we don't demand things out of people, though people demand things from us. But we're just similar type guys. If we were in another dimension, I'm sure that we'd be brothers somehow, real brothers, blood brothers. When you do that song, like you immediately know, like, okay, this is going to be a hit. Vince is going to love it. Is it like you're super confident? Vince never turned down anything we did. Nothing. He, we, we'd, we'd sketch it together. You know, I'd have my rig with, uh, you know, the drum machine and my keyboards and whatever. And, and when we had it together, what we thought sounded like what we needed to present, then Jimmy would go get Vince, and he'd come down there and go, okay, okay, y'all, what do you got? And we'd kick it in, and he never turned anything down, nothing. He said, it's perfect. Press it. And he just, not like he would ever question it, but he never had any problem. He would be like, okay, that theme is perfect. Let's go with it. He never would say, oh, tweak this, tweak that. He pretty much liked whatever you guys did. Yep. He, he loved us because we delivered quick and solid. When demolition comes about, like, wh- how does that go? Like, is that you and Jimmy again thinking and then kind of playing off of each other? Yes. And then, you know, I started, you know, we need a heavy theme for that. You know, we did the Road Warriors thing, too, but we wanted something different from that, but something still in the genre, you know. So I just sat down there and came up with what you heard within about 10 minutes. And then he put the words to it, and that's it. And then, but what we did is, 
is the bridge where it goes, demolition, you ain't no magician. That's two chords there. Well, I already wrote all that, but Jimmy said, this is how smart Jimmy Hart is. He said, McGuire, leave that bridge out, those two chords where it goes, demolition. I said, man, that didn't, that's all it is is just a dun, 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 which is okay. But it needs to be a whole thing. No, nah, no, nah, here's what we do. You leave those two chords out. We let Rick Danger add them, and then we share a writer's credit with an icon. And that's what we did. Smart man. But I'd already written it. I'd already written it all. But he knew that that's the resolve that it should have, you know, musically speaking, where it should go. And Jimmy knew that he let him add those two chords, and then we, the three of us would be together, you know, on that. But Rick produced it and added the two chords, but I'd already written them and left them out because of what, how I told you. Smart man, uh, that Jimmy Hart. He knows what he's doing. Brilliant, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. One of the smartest people that's ever been around or in wrestling, even though he's not a wrestler. With, yeah. let, let's say, Honky Tonk Man's music, how does that go? Well, Honky had some old sorry southern type of bar fighting theme or something going back there. He's out to Honky. I don't remember what it was, but it was lame. He said, Came to the back one night and said, McGuire, that thing that they've got on me is the worst thing that's ever been done. He said, you and Jimmy got to come up with something good for me. I, I can't make it on this. Said, okay, Wayne, no problem. So I just jumped into an old, dun -dun 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 -dun, you know, old uh, uh, rockabilly lift. And we pinned that one in about 15 minutes. And Jimmy put the words down, and that's what you got. With and then Wayne Wayne sang it, you know. I got yeah. alongside Burns. I was gonna say with them singing it, do you prefer the the wrestler to sing it, or do you prefer to have like Jimmy or Derringer or somebody with more musically inclined? I think it's better for the wrestling that if the wrestler can do it, like Shawn Michaels. Uh, that's the the most played wrestling entrance theme in the history of wrestling, and you know when when uh, I put that together and Jimmy put the lyrics to it. Uh, you know, first Sherry Martell sang it, you know, he's so cool. He's so sexy, but then they let Sherry go. So we took Sean in and then he said, I'm so cool. I'm so sexy. And we let him do it. But there's very few of the talent that did their own thing. Ted did his, uh, Sean did his, you know, uh, just a very few of them, uh, performed their own thing. But I think it was more effective that they did it themselves in their character. That is pretty recognizable, even though Sean's got that gravelly voice. I mean, everyone knows uh, Sexy Boy, right? I mean, everyone knows that song. I, I guess so. Uh, I, you know, I just, like I said, I, I wrote all this stuff. I didn't write it for my ego. I wrote it for the world's ego, the fans, that what people wanted to hear that fit what the character was. I wasn't trying to put myself over. I was trying to put icing on their cake, so to speak. Now, you mentioned LOD, the Road Warriors, What a Rush. Another song, I mean, it fits them perfectly. Get, you get pumped as soon as you hear Ah, What a Rush. How did that all come about? Well, uh, they, you know, they used another theme in the other league they were in. But then, like I said, Vince wanted to have original material on the people and not be paying royalties to other people's stuff and whatever. So he came to us and said, we need a Road Warrior theme, LOD theme, rather. Okay, so I came up with what you heard, and uh, that's what it is. And Jimmy said, sounds good, McGuire, but he, Jimmy always gave, gave me the leeway on the music, you know. When you're creating that, are you thinking of the wrestler? Like, are you watching the wrestler? Are you, like, kind of trying to emulate him in the music, or is this a much different form than that? No, it's what you're saying. I, I would, first of all, I'd go and watch to see what their gimmick was what the outfit looked like, what their timing was getting to the ring. You know, I assessed all those maneuvers and movements, and then I came up with what you hear. As far as you saying, like, you know, 96% of the themes, what about Jim Johnston? I feel like there's a big misconception out there that he created every theme. You know what I mean? I think for whatever reason that's out there, do you have you heard that, or did you ever sense that? It's like, wow, how come everyone thinks he created all these themes? Like, I created all these, you know, most of these themes. 
Well, he, uh, you know, he was part of their thing when they first started before Jimmy and I came in and, uh, you know, Jim Johnson did good work. Mm -hmm. Uh, the best thing to me that he ever did was, uh, the undertaker thing. You know, he did a few other things, but I really don't believe that if you took all his things together, stone cold and all the best that he could do, I still don't believe it's a match for the list of what we did. Sorry. He is great, and he he does have a thing. But I mean, your your songs are, are I know there's a bunch of other ones that you even mentioned that are just epic, epic songs. I was actually just talking to Slick the other day, and he was talking about Jive Soul Bro. Did you also do Jive Soul Bro? No, didn't do Jive Soul Bro. Uh, I, I don't. I, maybe uh, Johnson might have done that. But here's the thing. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Jimmy Hart and I had written and performed and sold hit records. Jim Johnson is a great uh, specialty uh, theme creator uh, himself, but he never had a hit record. And Jimmy Hart and I knew the pulse of the public, I think, greater than he did. But he got the leeway to do to get all the attention for doing it all because he was there before we were. And, you know, uh, I, you know, I have fans tell me, they, they tell me they think this, I'm not saying this myself, but they seem to think that a lot of his stuff sounds very similar, but our stuff is different. I mean, you know, you, you take Brutus Beefcake theme or Jimmy Snooker theme and then jump over to Legion of Doom and whatever. It's like, you wouldn't even believe the same people wrote the same songs or played it. True. That's what the fans tell me, you know, when, when they come to the meet and greets. But but it's all good, and I'm glad that Vince had uh, all of us to to do this, and it created variety, and that's the main thing. But uh, I, I believe that, that we, you know, I think that we gave, we I think maybe we might have touched the hearts of the people maybe a little greater in a certain way because of the characters that we got to do the music for. And Jim had to do, you know, things for 10,000 different midline, mid-card wrestlers and guys that are on the bottom and, and then some A-lister, the A-listers as well, some. But everything we did was A-lister, everything. Have you heard that misconception, though, that about him? Like, oh, he must have created all these themes? Like, does that, like, bother you at all? Because it seems like that is out there for I don't know whatever reason. That he, oh, it must be Jim Johnson. Oh, that must be Jim Johnson, even though that's not true. Well, uh, I, I don't know. I think, you know, I didn't I didn't ever try to ring a big bell and scream big and loud about all this, you know. And uh, I made good money, and I was happy and got to travel around the world and do whatever. I wasn't really concerned with Jim Johnson because I had, you know, Jimmy and I had our own thing, and we were grateful for what we had. But, uh, I, you know, I understand what you're saying. A lot of people, they'd see uh, my name on things and go, oh, I guess that's just some guy that was thrown on or something. But, uh, you know, uh, WWF gave Johnson, you know, he was in the, the tower up there. They gave him, they built him a big mega studio in there and everything and, you know, gave him carte blanche and whatever and uh, and all that. So, and then... You know, he was on payroll with WWE, and, uh, you know, we we weren't really, you know, I, I wasn't a payroll part. I was uh, basically worked for hire, but the contract that we had, you know, uh, I, I didn't want to be an employee of WWE because if I had been, then WWE is going to make most of the money, which they, they, they kind of did in a way, but by them, by me being an independent contractor, you know, I was able to keep, we were able to keep our riders. We didn't give all that to Vince for a sum, you know. We kept that. And that's how we made our money. And then what he made off of sales and stuff, he had to pay us half of that money. So it was a great deal, you know. But Johnson was just telling like a salary or something up there. And then, you know, he made uh, riders royalties too, but uh, he was more of an in house employee. We were freelance hitters, like baseball stars or something. You know what I mean? Free agents on the music. And that was my whole M.O. Because I knew we were going to make more money that way than just being a slave to the company. With 
you know, Johnson, were you guys friends at all or did you guys are way too busy? It's two separate worlds. Not really, you know, friendly, but not necessarily friends. I don't know him at all. I know, I know nothing about Jim Johnson. I don't know uh, where he eats or where he lives or I'm not concerned with Jim Johnson at all. Now, as far as you and just going back to the themes, my favorite theme of all time is the Dusty Rhodes theme. Did you do Dusty Rhodes as well? That's correct, yes. What's the uh, the inspiration there? Because you got the cowbell, you know, you got the, the long yeah, American yeah. dream. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah uh, Dusty, he came to us and said, I need a good theme, you guys. And I said, because, see, Dusty used to wear that cowbell around his neck, you know, and throw it to the crowd and stuff and so I knew I had to utilize that cowbell. So it starts out with that cowbell hitting. And then we got a lady that was the lead singer for the Beale Street Choir in Memphis to sing that. He's just a common man. Uh, and then Jimmy wrote those uh, absolutely phenomenal lyrics. You know, redneck, funky, black or white, you know, and the whole thing. And uh, I played all the instruments. Everything that you ever heard that he and I did, I played everything. I did it all. I had classical training as a kid and, you know, and all that. I performed in classical uh, concerts. I had an offer, a, a completely paid offer to go to Juilliard uh, Music School with everything paid for, the works, and I turned it down because I had an opportunity to play with the Gentries. I bypassed that, and I'm sure glad I did because look what it led to. Yeah, absolutely. I think all the wrestling fans are happy with, with that that move as well. Yeah, yeah. It's never planned anything, John. Nothing. Jimmy or I, either one. We never made had a big. Uh, what are you going to do in five years? You hear that all your life. We didn't plan anything. We just, when the demand was there, and was requested of us, we delivered. And nothing was planned. Nothing was mapped out. There wasn't any roadmap. We were just a couple of southern guys floating down the river on a kayak. I love it. Are you still friends with Jimmy to this day? <laughs> I think I better hang up. I talk to Jimmy every day. I mean, we, we are just like beyond family. We are like one person. It's awesome. That's got me decades upon decades of friendship. A a lot of people have this idea that don't understand that, you know, I'm some kind of guy that was down here that somebody just called and sent something up and whatever. Listen, I traveled the world with Andre and Hulk and everybody. I was an integral part of the whole company. And, you know, uh, it wasn't like I was just some guy that they called up that could play an instrument. You know, I mean, I was a part of everything, everything. I love the you know, still the friends whole, with Jimmy after all these. I mean, we're talking about uh, four or five decades of friendship. Right. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah, we uh, the first uh, when I first met him, here's how it went. The Gentries were an agent that booked the group that I was with from Lexington, Kentucky, had also booked the Gentries on some concerts and stuff. Well, the group I was with from Lexington broke up, and so Joe Powers, this agent that was booking both entities, he called said uh, McGuire. He said this guy named Jimmy Hart. He owns the name of the Gentries, and I said, yeah, the Gentries are a hit group, man. They had the million seller and whatever, and and uh, he said, yeah. He said, uh, they're looking for a drummer. And I went, really? He said, yeah. He said, look, here's his number. I didn't know Jimmy Hart from Jimmy anybody. And so he said, call him. He's waiting for you. So I called, and hi, this is Jimmy Hart. Hi, Mr. Hart. How are you? This is uh, J.J. McGuire. Uh, yeah, Joe Powers told me you're an excellent drummer and played, uh, you know, drums really great. And Jimmy didn't even know that I played all the instruments or anything. And so I didn't say that. I just said, yeah, I'm a drummer. He said, well, we've got auditions next Tuesday, but we've got Jerry Lee Lewis's ex-drummer coming in. And we've got one of Ray Charles's drummer coming to audition. And I said, sounds real good, but those guys are more traditional rockabilly and orchestrated type drummers. They're not rock drummers. And the Gentries, y'all become a rock band, you know, more like now. And I said, uh, how about this? I'll come to Memphis at my expense. And if you choose them, some one of them over me, you don't owe me a dime. Thank you for the chance. But if you choose me over them, 
then you'll pay half my expenses, and then you'll guarantee me a year's worth of work. Okay, McGuire, but I'm just telling you who's down here. Okay, Hart, sounds good. I'll see you Tuesday. I plowed myself down there to Memphis and took my drums by myself. We went to the old Elvis American Studios where they had it set up for the audition. So those guys, one of the guys went in first. The guy with Ray Charles went in first. And I heard him in there beating around. He came out, and we said, how'd it go? And he said, well, I don't know yet. Then the second guy, the guy that played with Jerry Lee Lewis, he went in. He came back out. He said, well, I hope they liked what I did. And then I was last, and then I went in, and they, the demo song they wanted to play to was Going Down by Don Nix, which has been covered by Jeff Beck and you know tons of artists. And I knew the song, but I had a double bass drum set. And at that period in time, there was hardly any drummers in the, in the world that, that played double bass. John Bonham had used it some. And uh, the guy that played with Tommy Aldrich that played with uh, Jim Dandy Magrum and them, Black Oak, Arkansas, he was awesome, and he played them. That's about it. Okay, so I played it with a double bass drum set. They were in awe of that double bass drum. They kept looking at that like, I've never seen anything like that. And so I played the song. They got three-quarters way through the song, stopped the song. And I thought, well, this has scared them. They, this is too progressive for them. They don't get it. And I said, I probably ruined the whole thing. So they kind of whispered between the, he and Wes Stafford, the guitar player, who was the band leader for the Gentry's at the time. And I thought, well, that's, it's too much for them. So uh, they kind of talked and went back to the back part of the studio. And So then I got up. I started taking my cymbals down. I figured, well, it's, that's all she wrote. And so then uh, Wes came up and started talking to me. So he said, he kept looking at those double bass drums and he kept saying, man, I, I've never heard or seen anything like that in my life. And I said, well, it's a, it's, it's a brand new thing. And, uh, but uh, here it is. He said, it sounds really different, man, and whatever. And I thought he's just being polite or something. Okay. So then Jimmy walks out into the hall through the door and we talk a minute. Wes and I do. He comes back in and they kind of whisper to one another. And I'm taking my cymbals down. And I'm being real polite, and thank you very much, and you guys really sound great. And and so they said, McGuire? And I went, yeah. They put their hands out and said, welcome to the Gentries. Awesome. And that's where it started. Nice. And it's been uh, going ever since, which is just uh, amazing. But being yeah. now Jerry Lee Lewis's guy and Ray Charles's guy, not too shabby. No, not too shabby, but they weren't the right thing for what they were doing. And then we proceeded to do Cover Cinnamon Girl by Neil Young, and we had a worldwide hit with it. And we had such success with it, then Neil decided to do a, four, do a 45 with it off the album himself. It was just on the album, and we did it. And back then, groups uh, did that. They took other groups' uh, songs that were on the albums and did a 45, you know, a single. But we had so much success that, with it that Neil decided to cut it and release it himself after we did first. Though it was on his 33 and third album, you know, start with. But we did it on the single, and then he decided to do it too. Now, we're talking about, you know, the Gentry's a great band. What about Hulk Hogan and the Wrestling Boot Band? That's a pretty good one as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. The, the Wrestling Boot Band uh, was really, uh, uh, really a great thing, a fun thing to do. And, we worked real hard on that. I went down to Florida and we went to Hulk's, uh, he had a beach house and he and Brutus and Jimmy and I went over there and put together that whole album. You know, I wrote everything on that album and played uh, 98% of all instruments and produced it. Jimmy did all the lyrics and everything and, you know, gave suggestions and whatever. And we had real good success with that. We got to number 10 on the youth charts or whatever it was on that. And then we were in the top, 60 of the regular billboard charts with it for you know pretty good for a a specialty type album you know we weren't we're not the beatles and we're not competing with stones you know we're doing a specialty product there with you know that that american made theme which is kind of crazy to say but i almost like american made more than real american which is such a legendary and iconic theme but you know, you had to have an iconic theme for the biggest name ever in wrestling. So American made, how did like, you, you just think like, okay, we, we, it's gotta be patriotic and 
not outdo Real American, but it's got to be as epic, you know, as grandiose sounding as Real American. Well, uh, we knew that we had to come up with something in the vein of Real American, but not sound like it. And so I came up with what you heard. And there you go. Uh, and then we did bring in Todd Plant is singing that. We had a great vocalist friend of ours. And, uh, and then a friend of his, only way he would do it is he brought in the guitar guy that's doing a lot of the Eddie Van Halen-ish stuff, which I wasn't really excited about, to be honest with you. And I always say this, uh, I was ill and couldn't make it. I was sick and couldn't get down for the final dubs. And I would not have had that guy playing those diddly diddly licks continually all through it. Now this is the fans. They liked it. However, whatever, but I was never satisfied with that. I, I thought that was overplayed and overdone. And, uh, so I wasn't happy about that and still not, but, but ultimately the fans liked it and that's all that matters. Didn't matter that I didn't like it or not because it, we did this for the fans, but I wouldn't have had so much of that lead guitar going on and on and on, on it. If I was going to do that, I'd have had Eddie Van Halen come over and he would have come over and done it cause he was friends with Hulk, but neither here nor there. It wound up being successful, and I appreciate you saying that you liked it better, but I, I have to say that I think that Real American is a fantastic theme, but, you know, that was originally written for Barry, Barry uh, Wyndham and uh, Mike Rotundo. Yeah, it wasn't, U.S. It wasn't, Express. It wasn't written. Yep. Yeah, it wasn't written for Hulk. He was going to use Eye of the Tiger. Yep. Yeah. Well, Eye of the Tiger, they ditched that because they didn't want to pay the royalties to a survivor hmm. over time. So that's when they came up with that other. But then when Hulk went with WCW, you know, I came up with American Made, and uh, I played every instrument on that that you hear, except for the diddly diddly guitar parts, which I thought was kind of overdone. No, no offense to that whoever that was, a friend of his that did it, but I wouldn't. I would have trimmed that down some myself. But that's just a technical producer's point of view. But the the bottom line is, fans loved it, and that's all that matters. He also had to write Be a Hulkamaniac, right? I mean, kind of a weird song, but very childlike or, you know, trying to get a certain audience with that song. Yeah, uh, we did that for that reason, because uh, there were so many young little kids that loved to come to the parents and watch, you know, it's family entertainment then. It wasn't hardcore stuff like today or Edge stuff. Uh, you know, everything was uh, birthday cakes and happy-go-lucky and take your vitamins and say your prayers, you know, type thing. And it was family entertainment. Uh, so we we constructed that song to appeal to little kids, you know. But if you listen to the Wrestling Boot Band album, it's got every type of style of music on it. Rap, pop, rock, country, uh uh, reggae, you know, it's it's it's, it's a pretty wide uh, genre of material, but yet it's a specialty product. You understand? Aimed at aimed at the people that like the wrestling and the fan that you know, it wasn't aimed at your typical top forty lover. You know, it's aimed at an audience that it's designed for. For sure. I mean, uh, he's got. Uh, a lot of different uh, tracks. I mean, we mentioned um, American Made, which was great. I want to be, and I want to be a Hulkamaniac. And but you know, you got a Hulkster in Heaven and Beat Pro. I mean, they're, they're, you're right. There's a the whole range of, of different songs on there. Yeah, and that was the whole goal. Uh, you know, to really show the variety. But I've always had to do all kinds of music my whole life. I started out when it was just mainly soul music. Heavy music hadn't happened yet. When I was like 13, I was in the top prom band in kentucky and we did ain't too proud to beg and hold on i'm coming and ooh baby baby and you know that was what everybody wanted to hear there wasn't any cream there wasn't any hendrix yet there wasn't any any of that and so i started out like daryl hall and them i started out in the soul genre yeah it's interesting to see just like of the wrestling things, when you kind of look at them, it's like all different genres really broken down, not all rock, right? I mean, you, it's really a splice of life. It's, it's all, all different in wrestling themes. 
Yes, and, and but you have every type of individual out there listening. You can't just design this music to be one-dimensional type of thing with a continual guitar riff on every song. You've got to have variety, and that's what I did, and I had the classical training to be able to know how to do it. Now, as we start to wind it down, head towards the finish, I was always curious. Were you always like a big wrestling fan? Because you seem to understand the business and obviously put the music into the business, but you always seem to have a, a good grasp on wrestling. Were you always a big wrestling fan? Yes. Uh, when I was uh, a teenager, every Saturday I would watch the Channel 10 uh, wrestling out of Knoxville, Tennessee. I'd fix my cereal up and sit there and root for the, the guys, you know, and just, just really enjoy it. And uh, I always liked it. Uh, the the first time I was exposed to wrestling, I used to go to Chicago in the mid '60s when I was uh, about ten years old, or nine, eight or nine, ten, something like that. And uh, my uncle was a, he liked to watch wrestling, and so one night WOR was on. He said, "Jimmy, come on in here. Wrestling's on." I went, "Wrestling? Okay." I was kind of baffled. Sat down there. And what I saw come out changed my life. Gorgeous George came out. And I looked at that prancing around as a kid, and I thought to myself, I've never seen anything like this in my whole life. And I, right then, I knew that there was going to be something for me in that. Yeah. He was definitely an inspiration for a lot of people, even, even Muhammad Ali. He was, a big, he was a big fan. He was a fabulous character, and and uh, it was and Uncle Bob. He would laugh, you know, the way he would prance around, and they'd be baffled by him, and then he'd let them have it, you know. And my Uncle Bob just loved that. He thought he would laugh and just loved that so much. And so Uncle Bob was the person that introduced me to wrestling on WOR up there in uh, Lakeshore Drive, fourteen hundred Lakeshore Drive, Chicago, looking right out over Lake Michigan. They had apartment 17b that's where it all started for me would gorgeous george be your uh, favorite all-time wrestler or do you have somebody else that you would consider your favorite oh well gorgeous george is my all-time inspirational wrestler but to me the greatest wrestler for the business that's ever been is hulk hogan no doubt you can love him or you can hate him or you can do whatever you want to do but he's the like rick flair's told you Hulk Hogan is the greatest attraction that wrestling's ever had. And Hulk says that Ric Flair is the greatest wrestler that wrestling's ever had. Mm -hmm. And then I, I would also say that Andre, you know, really created great. But Andre stayed in one dimension. Hulk Hogan brought the whole thing to a whole brand new third dimension. And what happened from there is subject to debate. But Hulk Hogan was the biggest door opener for modern wrestling that's ever been. And he sold more tickets than any wrestler that's ever lived. There's only one other wrestler that has eclipsed Hulk Hogan in money and fame. And that's Ed Strangler Lewis. And Ed Strangler Lewis, in my book, my grandfather saved the life of Ed Strangler Lewis at the Opera House in Lexington, Kentucky in 1929. I wasn't born until my parents were 42 years old. When my dad was 19 years old, his father, my grandfather, Dr. Uh, J.D. McGuire, he was a wrestling fan, and he and my future dad-to-be would go down there and get ringside. So one night, Strangler came out, Ed Strangler Lewis came out, he's chewing gum, and a fan slapped him on the back and he got choked and he was choking to death for real. And they got on the megaphone and said, there's a doctor, please. This, this, this wasn't a work or whatever. This was real. And granddad saw a whole thing happen and he jumped uh, underneath the rope and they didn't use a barricade. They just had a rope then and, uh, like at a movie theater and, and he, however, he hung him, whatever he did and he, uh, got the gum out of him. Uh, now, Ed Strangler Lewis was the Hulk Hogan of wrestling, uh, if you're familiar with that far back. Oh, yes. Uh, early, early on. So, Strangler was turning blue, and Granddad saved me. 
And so he said, Dr. McGuire, you and your son, please come to the back with me. They took him out and they carried him out. And, and you got to remember during that era, people dressed to the wore tuxes to wrestle. They didn't wear their underwear like they do today. People addressed those events like it was grand, you know, wealthy type image and everything. People were dressed to the, in tuxes and ladies in formal wear and everything. And that was the era. And so anyway, dad, dad always told me this story when I was a kid and I didn't pay close attention that much. I always said, well, dad, I got to go out and play. I got to do this or, you know, you know, how kids are not realizing my future is going to be a part of all this. But then they went to the back. This is all in the book. They went to the back and Strangler Lewis says, Dr. McGuire, you saved my life. He said, I tell you what, I owe you. He said, no, you don't, because I took a Hippocratic oath to do that. And you don't owe me anything. And he said, no. He said, you you choose. He said, you can either have a brand new uh, horse and buggy, or you could have one of those newfangled cars. This was 1929 now. And so Granddad said, no. He said, no, I already have a car, and I've got a horse and buggy and everything. Uh, you know, Granddad was pretty wealthy. You know, he was a prominent surgeon. He actually invented some heart uh, operating tools that are still used to this day in the medical community. He had patents on. And so he said, no. And then he looked at my dad, Dad, he said, and he said, he looked back at Ed and he said, Strangler, how about this? How about lifetime ringside seats? Strangler said, that's all you want? He said, that'd be enough. And so be it. He said, so be it. And then decades later, I was born and became one of the masters of wrestling ring music. That is awesome, for sure. What do you think is, is the legacy of you in, in wrestling? Like, as, as far as, <laughs> like, when people think legacy. about you, like, what do you think? Because, you know, the Dusty theme, the, the Road Warrior, or LOD, really, the Demolition, Honky Tonk Man, Teddy Biasi, Coco, Brett, Sean. I mean, there's so many themes it's uh you know it's if you're a wrestling fan music and the themes go hand in hand well I, i'm glad that people like it i, I did it so that, that people would enjoy themselves uh, that's why i got into music i didn't get into it for the women i didn't get into it for the, really the money uh I, I got into it because i was thrilled by how it made people have fun and smile you know and that's why i did it all and you know, I just like to say uh, back to Strangler Ed. You know, uh, I don't know if you realize this or not. Strangler Ed was imperative in creating, uh, you know, Capital Wrestling. And you know what that became? WWF. Capital Wrestling became WWWF and then WWF and whatever. Strangler Ed Lewis was imperative in the development of all that in the beginning. So I owe a lot to Strangler Lewis. That's all I'm saying. And I owe a lot to Hulk Hogan. And I owe a lot to Vincent Kay and Vincent Sr. And I owe a lot to a lot of people. But they gave, I was a guy from a little town that had a dream. And I lived just like they did. And I was fortunate enough to be picked to be a part of one of the greatest shows that ever happened. And I always close my interviews with this. God gave me talent. Um. so I took it to the greatest show on earth. I traveled the world with some of the greatest of all time. Unbelievably entertained people of color in all walks of life. Who knew that wrestling is such a powerful force? I did. Well said. Before we let you go, please give us all the plugs where they can get the book and, and maybe follow you on social media. Uh, yes. Um, the book can be got at any Digital outlet, uh, eBay, uh, Amazon, uh, Eat, Sleep, Wrestle, John Cospers, uh, you know, he, he uh, and I put the book together. Uh, his his company, you can get it from him. You can get a signed copy through Eat, Sleep, Wrestle. Now, there's another thing called Eat, Sleep, and Wrestle, but not to be confused with John Cospers, Eat, Sleep, Wrestle. And um, he's got it, and you can get it on any digital outlet. Um and then, uh, I, you know, I have Facebook, John Maguire. You can go up there and see a lot of stuff. Uh, and that last name's M-A-G-U-I-R-E. 
and it's the one with the wrestling boot band picture with me in it. And I've got three different Facebook things there, but the one you want to really look at is what I just said. And that, that gives information on my performances and where I'm going to be uh, meeting and greeting. And um, other than that, and then, of course, Jimmy and I, we're working on a monumental project I can't go into right now, but I'll tell you this, that we've already, the offer's been made and we're going to follow through, but it won't be till next year, but that's about all I can say, but it's going to be one of the most monumental musical endeavors uh, based around a wrestling that's ever been done in history, so. I'm just going to leave it at that. I can't say any more for them. I love it. I'll be looking out for that uh, for sure. Damn, I love it. Yeah. But, uh, JJ, thank you uh, so much. It's been an honor, and it's been awesome to get you on. I really appreciate all the time tonight. Well, I, uh, I thank you for asking me, and I've heard nothing but great uh, talk about you guys. And, and I want to thank you all for giving me the opportunity to tell these stories. And for the people that are interested, you know, uh, I owe everything to them. Uh, it's, it's the fans and the people that supported all this that I owe everything to, and I'm never going to forget them or that, ever. Thank you uh, so much, and I uh, appreciate it, but uh, thank you for all the time tonight. No problem, anytime, and uh, you guys take care up there, and uh, when we get to going on some of the other projects, I'll be sure to holler back at you, and we'll go over it, too. Yes, please do. Definitely want to know all about it. But appreciate all time. Yes, sir. Thank you. Have yourself Thank a you great much. night. Yes, sir, John. Thank you. Bye now. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You could follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You could check us out on Facebook. You could subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother.